This is a, a special day in, in the sense that uh, not only is spring sprung in California, which is a wonderful thing, unless you have hay fever, but uh, tomorrow is Mother's Day. And so we wanted to talk about uh, one of the, the great heroes or models of a, uh, a mother in scripture. Uh, so often people talk about Hannah or Rachel or Jochebed. But um, today we're gonna be talking about Mary. Now you don't often hear people talk about Mary on Mother's Day because let's face it, it looks a little bit like a Christmas sermon and it's spring. But she really has some great lessons that we can learn from her. And it's not just for those that are mothers or women, but everybody. I think Mary is a great model of somebody that um, is receiving the characteristics to have Christ born in them. Now, how many of us want to have Christ born in us? So we're gonna see what we can learn about that uh, study from this unique character. But I always like to start with an amazing fact. Ha have you ever heard of a honey guide? Honey guides are birds that you're gonna find in Africa that um, have a unique relationship with people and even some other animals where they will flutter and get uh, the attention of somebody and if you walk towards the bird, it'll go a little further, still within your distance, and a little further and it'll lead people, and some say even badgers, to a beehive, which then the people will harvest the honey and the honey guide then gets to eat the, the pollen and the, the larvae, and so it is always showing people or badgers to where the honey is so that in the process they're getting to the hive, it opens it up so that the honey guide can get the honey. Now something else interesting about honey guides, they're in a category of birds that we call brood parasites. That doesn't sound very nice, but what they do is they lay their eggs in the nests of other birds. And here you have a picture on the screen of I think it's a woodpecker nest and you see one little white egg in there because they, uh, they have other birds raise their young. And they fly around, I guess, and they look at other nests and they evaluate the, uh, the woodpecker or whatever the other bird is. That, that looks like they got a nice nest, looks like they're gonna be good parents. I'm gonna put an egg there. Now I realize that's a crude illustration, but can you imagine God deciding what mother and father are going to host and raise his son incarnate. What would be the criteria that you would have to make that decision? And I think as we look at the life of Mary, we're gonna find that she had some characteristics we could all learn from that uh, help us to understand what does it take to have the Son of God born in you? To be receptive to that, to have some of those qualities well, let's go first of all to the announcement that you're gonna find in the Bible. If you look in the Gospel of Luke, and we'll spend a little time there, Luke chapter one, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, now this is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Luke begins talking about Zachariah and Elizabeth, how in their old age they were gonna conceive, and they did it the old-fashioned way like Abraham and Sarah. 
and that they were going to have a son, even though it seemed like it was way past any potential. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin. Now that's the fulfillment of a prophecy that you find in Isaiah 7:14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. So we see that she was, uh, for one thing, there's a purity there, she's a virgin. And it says, um, a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph, to the house of David, or from the house of David, the virgin's name was Mary. And there we have her name. First time the name appears in the New Testament is Mary. Now, uh, it tells us also that uh, there's something about her genealogy that is unique. But before we get to that, you know, Mary is among one of the most popular names in the world. In fact, the name Mary is twice as popular as the second place most popular girl's name. This is a list, it may actually be a couple years old now, but uh, the girl's names kind of trend. Matter of fact, I think uh, Lily is on the list now and I saw we dedicated a Lily this morning. We have a granddaughter named Lily. And uh, some of the names will trend, it's interesting, some of the names trend based on movies and TV programs. That's too bad. But anyway, but Mary always stays at the top of the list. Of course, Maria would be in the same category. Now the name Mary is the Greek form of the name Miriam. And of course you find Miriam there in the Old Testament. She is the older sister of Aaron and Moses. And when Miriam appears in the Bible, here you have this girl who is during a time of captivity protecting a promised child and she has the gift of prophecy and Miriam makes a wonderful inspired declaration to the Lord when they cross the Red Sea. Her counterpart in the New Testament, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is living during a time of Roman occupation and captivity and she is given the charge of protecting this child. You know there was an attempt during the time of Miriam to wipe out the, the seed of the Jews and all the baby boys to be killed. Same thing happened for Mary. They wanted to kill the seed of David there in Bethlehem. And Mary also gives a proclamation you're gonna read about in a moment in the book of Luke. So there's a number of parallels you'll find between Miriam and Mary. Now the name Mary means bitter, and it doesn't mean that they're a bitter person, it means they are born during bitter times. Um, you know, we always think about naming a person about their qualities, but the Jews would also name a person based on the times in which they live. You remember there's a character in the Bible named Ichabod. You probably remember because of the uh, Christmas story, or Tiny Tim. But you know, the name Ichabod, he received his name because of what had happened to the people what was going on to the people. The ark had been captured. The glory was departed. And so Mary and Miriam are born during times of occupation and difficulty for God's people. You remember when uh, the children of Israel went to those springs and it was called Mara and the water was bitter. And that's where you get the word Miriam and Mary. Now you notice something else unique about Mary is, and I can go through a number of things. I'm gonna talk about her 
humanity and her genealogy, her humility, her devotion, her endurance, her purity, her piety, her adaptability, and it won't take as long as you think. And yes, there's more. Talk about her genealogy. Mary is a person of prophecy. And it says that the Messiah would not only come through a virgin, but the Messiah would come through the house of David. And it tells us that not only is Joseph related to David, you have the genealogy of Joseph in Matthew. Matthew, who's speaking to the Jews, he shows that the father can be traced back to David. But in Luke, who's the doctor, he says, well, physiologically, she really comes from Mary. He then traces it through Joseph's father-in-law, who is Heliel. And so you can also find in the book of Numbers, verse, chapter 36, verse 8, and every daughter that possesses an inheritance in the tribe of the children of Israel shall be the wife of one of the family of the tribe of her father. So Mary married within the house of David because the, the inheritance could come through the daughter as well as the father, according to what Moses said to the daughters of Zelophehad. And then you look, of course, in Matthew chapter one, you've got the genealogy going through Joseph. Now, you notice next that it says in Luke chapter one, verse 38, that the angel of the Lord appears to Mary. In fact, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Turn to Luke chapter one, and we've got a few references here, so often I'm just sharing the scriptures. I've pasted into my notes, but sometimes it's good for us to go there and to uh, read it directly. You look, it says, now the angel of the Lord comes and he visits Mary. And you can start with verse uh, 26. Comes to see the virgin, verse 27. And he says to her in verse 28, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Mary's wondering, what does that mean? Now, what was every Jewish girl wondering? Someday the Messiah would come, obviously, be coming through a mother. That's how most of us get here, right? Anyone accepted here? We, that's how it happens. And every Jewish girl was wondering, could I be the mother of the Messiah? It goes all the way back to Eve. Eve knew a savior was coming, and when Cain came along, she says, I've received a man-child from the Lord, and she hoped it was him. Obviously, he wasn't. And she's wondering what this declaration means. Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. When she saw him, she's troubled and wonders what the greeting means. He says, don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. Why did she find favor? You see, I think Mary possessed a unique character that made her the ideal person to whom Jesus could entrust uh, as a child. Doesn't mean she was perfect. You know, one of the most perfect people in the Bible was Joseph, talking about Joseph, the son of Jacob. His mother was Rachel. Rachel was not perfect, but she must have been a godly mother because, boy, he ended up being quite a young man, very dedicated. Mary, I think, had some of the same qualities. And the angel announces that you are going to bring forth a son and call his name Jesus. And basically he said, Yeshua, Savior, and he'll be called son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. She knows what this means. And she says in verse 34, how can this be since I don't know a man? She was a young lady, she was not married, she was a virgin. Now, 
there's a lot of conjecture about how old was Mary. And I'll just tell you, I disagree with some of the people that say, well, you know, the Jews, as soon as a girl went through puberty, she was marrying age, or even sooner, because they would make these contracts, and maybe Mary was 11 or 12 or 13. I don't think so. There's nothing in the scriptures that tells us what her age was. But I think you can guess she may have been a little bit older. You look at what she says later, and she seems to have more maturity than an 11-year-old. And when you look at what she says, not only that, and I hope I don't shake your world, but when it says that Jesus had brothers and sisters, they were probably the children of Joseph from a former marriage. Joseph was older. One reason we sort of know that is Joseph never appears when Christ begins his ministry anywhere in the scripture. He's probably died at that point. Jesus on the cross, he gives his mother to the care of an apostle, not one of his brothers. Why would that be? And so uh, Joseph was probably older and um, Mary probably was a little older too, you know, probably somewhere 17, 18, again, I'm guessing, but I don't buy the story that she was just out of uh, puberty when this all happened. And so she's surprised and wonders what this is, and he says, this is what's gonna happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, tells us that Elizabeth is from the daughters of Aaron, which is a priest family, and Mary's related to David, and evidently David and Aaron. So she's got in her blood, you listening? She's got the king in her blood, and she's got the priest in her blood. Jesus is our king and our priest. By the way, you are a, nation's, a nation, Peter says, of kings and priests, holy priesthood. She says, how can this be? For with God, nothing is impossible. Can you say amen? Then what is Mary's attitude? Verse 38, behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So we see that Mary's got a spirit of humility. She submits. You know, you're never more like Christ than when you're humble. The Bible says Jesus humbled himself. You're never more like the devil than when you're proud. The devil wanted to exalt himself. So we see her genealogy, we see her humility, and if we want Christ to be born in us, we must humble ourselves. And then you see Mary's devotion, continuing on in Luke chapter one, verse 39, and I'm gonna read here. Now Mary arose in those days and went to the hill country in haste to a city of Judah, and she enters the house of Zechariah to greet Elizabeth. And it happens when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, that the babe leaped in her womb. Now how far along is Elizabeth? We just read it, in the sixth month it said, okay? How long does the gestation usually take? Nine months, that'll come up. The babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she speaks out with a loud voice and says, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed. What does it tell us about Mary? When she said, be it unto me according to the Lord. 
She, Mary believed. How are we saved? By faith. Mary believed the word of God. What did Zacharias say to the angel when he said, you're gonna have a baby? He starts to argue, and the angel said, well, God's gonna keep his word, but you're gonna be deaf until, you're gonna be dumb, rather, until the baby's born. And Elizabeth is saying, you believed. Blessed is he who believed, for there'll be a fulfillment of those things that were told her from the Lord. And then Mary said, verse 46, this is the longest statement of Mary in scripture. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly estate of his maidservant. She sees herself as a servant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. This is not an 11-year-old speaking. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. By the way, she quotes about 10 times from Old Testament scripture. How many times does Mary quote from the New Testament? Zero, why? Hadn't been written yet. Okay, just checking. See if you're with me. So she knew her Bible all the Bible that was available back then. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped the servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He has spoke to our, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Beautiful prophetic utterance. Now do you ever think of Mary as a prophetess? This was a spirit-filled utterance that's part of scripture. So in that sense, she was. And it says, Mary remained with her for how long? Three months. How long did Mary stay with her? She was there when John the Baptist was born. And then she goes back home. So she gets a lot of traveling in before this is over. So we see Mary's devotion. Mary knew the word. She quotes from the scripture. She had a personal relationship with the Lord. She prayed, she read the word. And that's something I think we want for the Lord to be born in us, we must be people of devotion. Then we learn about Mary's endurance. You can read in Luke chapter two, it says that the uh, emperor issues a census that all the world is to be taxed, all the Roman Empire, in order for them to be registered for the tax so that people aren't moving from place to place, they need to go back to the city of their birth and Joseph and Mary are forced now to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which is about 70 miles. How many of you remember reading about the donkey she rode? How many of you have seen her riding on a donkey? Come on, I mean pictures. Hey, you know, you've never seen. Well, you're afraid I'm trying to trap you. You would say, I'm not saying nothing. He's trying to get me. <laughs> yeah, how many of you have seen pictures of Mary on a donkey? Come on, fess up. Where does it say anywhere she ever rode a donkey? The donkey is not there. The donkey is with Balaam in the Old Testament. <laughs> the donkey is with Jesus when he rides into Jerusalem. She may have ridden a donkey. She may have walked 70 miles, nine months pregnant. That's endurance. She was tough just like the children of Israel going through the wilderness. So she has endurance. You read about that in Luke 2, 
Verse 6, not only that, while she's in Bethlehem, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in strips of cloth, swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I read somewhere, and don't ask me where, I can't remember, it's not in the Bible, that the, the priests, when their garments reached the expiration date, they would tear up the garments of the priests, they would give them to the mothers to wrap their newborns in, and they thought that to say that they're given to God, they're wrapped in the swaddling cloths of the priests. It's beautiful, I, I can't prove that, but I do remember reading it. Um, and I think it's interesting that he was placed in a manger. It's a place where you put grain for animals, and Jesus is born in Bethlehem, that means house of bread. So here you have the bread of life placed in a bread container in the house of bread. That's interesting. So, you know, she could have complained about the hotel room. She didn't get a hotel room. And um, so she's got endurance. And then you see that Mary has purity. It says she had, now this is Matthew 125. And she had no marital relations, Joseph had no marital relations with her until she had borne her son and named him Jesus. Now, I just gotta take a little detour here. You know, our friends in the Catholic Church and maybe some of the other Orthodox churches, they teach something called the Immaculate Conception. And they believe that Mary remained a virgin through her life. Uh, the Bible doesn't teach that. I think it's pretty clear when the Bible says that he did not know her until that would settle the matter. Joseph and Mary had a normal, they were humans, a normal married life, but because she's now carrying the child, Joseph and Mary and through the Holy Spirit, they said that we don't want anyone to have any questions or any doubt. We never came together as man and woman until after this child was born. He was conceived purely of the Holy Spirit. So to remove all doubt, they had that covenant that they kept, you understand? But after Jesus was born, they had a normal marriage. Say amen. But it tells us that she had a life of purity. Mary was pure. Mary was pious. Now what do I mean by that? It tells us that, and you read in Luke chapter two, verse 34, she brings him to the house of God at the appropriate time on his eighth day, so that he could be named, registered, circumcised. By the way, the first time Jesus shed blood was at his circumcision. Mary was there on the cross when he shed blood. At his crucifixion, Mary was there. Mary was one of the only ones to witness both his birth and his death. Another little footnote, you might find it interesting that the name Mary and the person Mary is also even revered in the Koran. They have a whole chapter dedicated to Mary. Did you know that? They believe that she was a holy woman. But she brought him to church. And she must have done something right because not only does she bring him to be named and circumcised and then of course Simeon comes out and he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he makes a declaration. Anna comes out, she's filled with the Holy Spirit. And so it's a very uh, you know, important occasion, it's auspicious as they would say, when she brings him to the temple and he is named Jesus and it's registered, he's circumcised according to the covenant, and, but she brings him to church. 
And I think it was a habit all through his life because you read on and it says in Luke 4.16, so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Where do you think Jesus got that custom? His mother and father had the pattern of bringing him to church, even through the teenage years, when some might protest, Jesus never protested. They brought him to church. I heard one pastor saying, when I was young, I had a drug problem. My parents drugged me to church. They drugged me Sabbath morning, they drugged me Saturday night, they drugged me to prayer meeting, I was drugged. <laughs> and she said, this is where we're going. And he had that pattern that he showed, it stayed with him through his life. Something else you learn about Mary, she must have had some adaptability. Joseph says, Mary, I know you're six months pregnant, but we've got to go down to Bethlehem. She says, okay. Then after they're in Bethlehem, she settles down because the wise men came into the house. So they settled there because they were from there originally anyway. And then the angel says, Joseph, you better get out of town. Herod wants to kill the baby. And Joseph says to Mary, Mary, we're moving to Egypt. Any of you married to a man like that? Just makes a sudden announcement. <laughs> and she says, okay, if that's what God wants. And she moves to Egypt, strange land, strange people speak a different language, though they did have a Jewish community in Alexandria and they may have gone there. So we see that she's got adaptability and God preserves them there. Then you see that Mary's got wisdom. It's the sagacity of Mary. And that's telling us, look at this, in Luke 2, verse 40, the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Look in Luke 2:52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I remember when I first started reading the Bible, I went down to the local bookstore and I found the Christian section and it had the Aquarian Gospel of Jesus. I didn't know better and I was kind of open to anything back then. And it was saying, yeah, Jesus, when he was a boy, he could never have gotten that wisdom from Joseph and Mary. The wisdom, he was adopted by these gurus in India. And they taught him. And, uh, you know, they've got all these theories about where did, what happened during the silent years. They see, Jesus went missing from his birth until his ministry. He didn't go missing. It says right here in the Bible, he was home growing in wisdom and stature. He grew up with them. It says he went home and he was subject to them. He was there. Amen? He was with them in Egypt, in Bethlehem, in Nazareth. He did not take a trip to China or India, as some have speculated. How many of you have heard some of these crazy theories? Yeah. They just can't figure how he could have got that wisdom. So you see that uh, Mary must have been wise. She was uh, teaching that wisdom. By the way, Solomon's wisdom was not just all... Uh, spiritual, you might say. Solomon's mother, what was her name? Bathsheba. Do you know who Bathsheba's grandfather was? Ahithophel, David's wisest counselor. She had some good genetics, too. So Bathsheba was wise, Mary was wise. Look at this, Luke chapter 2, 46, after they had come when Jesus is 12 years old, first time they go to the temple, and when Mary and Joseph go home with the, the big entourage that's come from Nazareth, they're heading north, 
And you know, Jesus was a responsible young man. They assumed he was somewhere in the crowd of pilgrims who were going back home. But that first or second night, they didn't see him anywhere around the camp. Finally, they turned back. And where did they find him? In the temple. And it says after three days, and this is Luke 2.46, came to pass after three days, they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the doctors. And Jesus had no PhD. Both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said, son, why have you dealt thus with us? Look, your father and I have sought you sorrowing or anxiously. And he said to them, why did you seek me? You didn't know where to look for me? I'd be in the house of God doing the business of my father. See, something happened when Jesus was 12 and he made his first trip to the temple. You probably have wondered, at what point in Christ's life did he realize he was the Messiah? I think everyone here knows that Jesus, when he was a baby, he had to learn to crawl. He needed his mother to feed him. He needed his mother to teach him. He grew up like other children in many ways, but at some point he had an epiphany of the Holy Spirit about what his mission was. I think that came upon him his first trip to the temple when he was 12 years old and he saw the Passover and the lambs being sacrificed and he understood he was the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. And he was so filled with hunger to understand the scriptures and the prophecies that he stayed behind, totally preoccupied with wanting to learn. And that's why he told his parents, you know I must be about my father's business. He wasn't talking about Joseph now, was he? He needed to be on with the mission of his father. But he went home and he was subject to them. But again, notice his wisdom. And his mother kept all these things in her heart. By the way, if you take your eyes off Jesus, you may spend a few days sorrowing finding him again. They misplaced Jesus. Can you imagine Mary and Joseph praying when they're on the way home and they don't know where Jesus is? Lord, you better sit down. We have something to tell you. We know that you gave us your son to watch over and to train. We've misplaced him. <laughs> that would probably be, how many of you would admit that you've misplaced your children? Some of you won't admit it. Yeah, you call mom and say, I thought they were with you. I thought they were with you. Are you running up and down the street? Whose house are they in? I did that once to my parents. It just came to me, this isn't in my notes. That um, I must have been five years old, I was living in Southern California and I went wandering up the street and uh, I think I was with my stepbrother and we found a neighbor that had an electric organ and somehow we, we heard it and we came in and she was showing us that and we were playing the organ and we were so preoccupied, we totally lost track of time. In the meantime, our parents like had the whole police force out looking for us didn't know where we were. Anyone, no, no, anyone else done something like that? Yeah. We misplaced him. So he learns from Mary. Now listen to what it says here. This is a great quote from the book, Desire of Ages. With deep earnestness, the mother of Jesus watched the unfolding of his powers and beheld the impressive perfection on his character. With delight, she sought to encourage that bright, receptive mind through the Holy Spirit, she received wisdom to cooperate with heavenly agencies. Now, is this only true of Mary? Is it true of every parent? 
Through the Holy Spirit will we receive support from God in teaching our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. If you're a Seventh-day Adventist, you gotta throw that in because we live longer. She received the power of the Holy Spirit and cooperated with these heavenly agencies in the development of the child who could claim only God as his father. The child Jesus did not receive instruction from the synagogue schools. His mother was his first human teacher. From her lips and from the scrolls of the prophets, could Mary read? From the scrolls of the prophets he learned of heavenly things the very words which he himself had spoken to Moses for Israel, he was now taught at his mother's knee. Talk about mind-blowing. The words that Jesus spoke to Moses, that Moses wrote down, that Mary is reading back to Jesus. We also learn about Mary's compassion. Now Christ has begun his ministry. She seemed to know that when he went to get baptized, that this was his mission. And the first miracle is, you know, the wedding feast at Cana. It says, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana, probably a relative, because Mary comes and Jesus comes. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, they probably would have had enough if he hadn't brought all the disciples. They ran out of wine. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now everyone makes a big deal of the miracle of Jesus, and as they should, but I think sometimes we miss something. Who is it that has compassion on the embarrassing situation of the bride and the groom? Mary has compassion. She says, oh, this is embarrassing, and this is awkward, and what can we do to help? And she wants to remedy the situation, so she goes to Jesus, and she said, they have no wine, she says with an imploring voice. You know, sometimes um, if you're married or you're a parent, you might just say, oh, the garbage bag looks full. Now that translates, will you take the garbage out? But the way you say it is first you just say the problem, right? Then you're hoping that they'll know what the answer is. So she says, they have no wine. He understands what the implication is. And he says, woman, I gotta just stop. When he says woman there, sometimes you think, that's kind of harsh, woman? You know, when I was a hippie, these motorcycle riders would call their girlfriend, hey woman, and it's kind of demeaning. That isn't what this word means. The word was a term of respect that means madam. I don't know, maybe in Spanish it would be like senora. It's a term of respect. And so he says, madam, what does your concern have to do with me? Providing the grape juice for the wedding is not my principal mission. My hour has not yet come. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he finally says, my hour has come. But then his mother, there must have been some unwritten communication because she then tells the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. He must have smiled and said, I'll help you, but this is not my primary mission. You know, I don't know, do you underline in your Bible? You know what Mary said? Whatever he says to you, do it. That's a good thing to underline. Whatever he says to you, do it. And of course, he works that miracle. So we see Mary's compassion there. Then we see Mary's patience. Came to pass, and this is Luke 8, 19. His mother and his brethren could not come to him because of the crowd 
So they send a messenger to fight his way through the crowd. And the messenger says, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They're desiring to see you. We don't know exactly why, but they wanted to see him. And he answered and said, my mother and my brethren are these that hear the word of God and do it. There again, you have the emphasis on doing the word of God. Now, Jesus always kept family a priority, but what's the most important family? Family of God. Jesus said that's the, that's the priority. It's not just that we might be related by blood, but those who do the word of God, they are my family. They are my mother and my sister and my brother. Mary deals with this patiently. There's no protest. Now, the next time Mary appears, I'm sure she was there many times along the way, is at the cross. You know, when she was in the temple with Jesus and he was named, Simon said, and a sword will pierce your own soul. If you're a mother, there are gonna be times of sorrow and heartache. I've never heard that truth discourage any woman from choosing to be a mother, but you know it's true. There'll be times where you worry, times you fret and you prayer, and there might be some anguish. And don't be discouraged, you're not alone. And doesn't it hurt us more to see our children suffer than to suffer ourselves? So when Jesus is being tried and led away, word eventually reaches Mary as it did all the apostles. And she's trying to keep up with what's happening. And she sees the crucifixion is gonna happen. Now this is a quote from that classic, The Desire of Ages on the Life of Christ in page 744. I can't say it better, so I'm just gonna quote this to you. The mother of Jesus, supported by John, the beloved disciple, had followed the steps of her son to Calvary. She'd seen him fainting under the burden of the cross and had longed to place a supporting hand beneath his wounded head and to bathe that brow that had once been pillowed on her bosom. But she was not permitted this mournful privilege. With the disciple, she still cherished the hope that Jesus would manifest his power and deliver him from his enemies. Again, her heart would sink as she recalled the words that he had foretold these very scenes that were now taking place. As the thieves were bound to the cross, she looked on with agonizing suspense. Would he who had given life to the dead suffer himself to be crucified? Would the Son of God suffer himself to be so cruelly slain? Must she witness this shame and sorrow without even the privilege of ministering to him in his distress? She saw his hand stretched upon the cross. The hammer and the nails were brought and the spikes were driven through the tender flesh and the heart-stricken disciples bore away from the cruel scene the fainting form of the mother of Jesus. Uh, you probably would faint with grief too if you saw something like that happen to your child. And you read there in John 19.25, you know, Jesus was on the cross six hours. So she revived shortly after and she said, take me back. Even though she had fainted from the sight, she wanted to be there. Because you read in John 19, verse 25, there stood by the cross of Jesus. First one mentioned, his mother. And his mother's sister, Jesus' aunt. Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. There are five Marys, probably in the New Testament, maybe four. Mary Magdalene and Mary of Bethany, probably the same Mary. And then you have Mary, the mother of John Mark, and you have Mary, Jesus' aunt, uh, the wife of Cleopas, who is one of the two on the road to Emmaus. 
and they're all by the cross. Now that's significant because when Jesus is first crucified, it says the disciples watch these things from afar off. But Mary was right there with Mary Magdalene at the foot of the cross. And you read on, and then you have Mary's legacy. And you read in John 19 verse 26, Jesus is now on the cross, therefore he saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved. And he said to his mother, woman, behold thy son. This is filled with significance, but for one thing, you know, if the woman's type of the church, the Gospel of John begins by saying, behold the Lamb of God, and it's telling the church to behold the Son. We are to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, amen? But really, historically, what he's saying also is to Mary, he nods at Jesus, he can't point, he nods at John, the apostle. He says, behold your son. Then he says to John, behold your mother. In his closing moments on the cross, he's concerned about the welfare of his mother. A lot of people are wanting to know, what will you leave me in my will? What thing do I get? Jesus did not leave her a thing. He left her not something, someone. Jesus' most beloved apostle, he commits the care of his mother to John, who he knew. You know, it's like when the father said, uh, Mary, I've looked over the earth and I'm looking for the very best person to take care of my son. I'm committing my son to you. And Jesus now looks down and he says to Mary, I am committing you to my most beloved and trusted apostle. And John was there for the rest of her life. Only apostle that did not die a martyr's death, he died of old age. We don't know exactly where Mary died. It may have been Ephesus or Antioch. You go to Turkey and there's several churches that say this is where she died. And of course our Catholic friends say and she ascended to heaven right away. It's called the Assumption of Mary. Bible doesn't teach that. But we're not done. It says that uh, in verse 24 we talk, look at Mary's understanding. She finally comprehends fully the mission of Jesus after the cross, and guess who's in the upper room when the Holy Spirit is poured out? You read in Luke 24, 33, she was probably there at the resurrection. It says they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11 and those who were with him. The 11 and those who were with him. Who were with the 11? You go to Acts chapter 1, verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer, the 12 apostles, and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren, the brothers. And so we see that she's there, and now she's filled with the Holy Spirit, with the early church, and she became, uh, as you'd say, a mother in Israel, a patriarch. Uh, Mary's a good example for us. She had these qualities, this, this patience, this endurance, this purity, humility, devotion, that every one of us wants to have, not just the mothers in our group, but we all have those things and Christ is born in us. She witnessed the crucifixion, then she witnessed the filling with the Holy Spirit. When we see Jesus lifted up for us, we also receive the filling of the Holy Spirit. And where is Mary now? You know, some say, well, she's up in heaven, we're supposed to pray to her. Nowhere in the Bible are we supposed to pray to Mary. You know, Elijah's up in heaven, is that right? The Bible says Elijah's in heaven because he went in a fiery chariot, but the Bible says Elijah was a man subject to like passions. He's a man. And Mary was a human, a woman. 
And she died, she did not go to heaven in a fiery chariot or with a parade of angels. There's nothing in the Bible that teaches that. She is sleeping sweetly, a dreamless sleep right now, no passage of time for her, waiting for the resurrection. Mary is a a child of God just like all of us, and how many of us want to be children of our Heavenly Father? 